This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. And I'm David Merrill. So David's on the road and we're going to do this podcast that I've been waiting to do for, I think, a year and a half, maybe two years. I have a special guest with us today from Alabama and I have a lot of respect for her because she's one of those people that's really into conserving the sport of fishing, telling the story of fishermen. And just has such a passion for fishing itself. And so it's my honor to have Sarah Parvin on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so glad this is finally happening. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been something we've had in the works for a little while. And well, like I said, it's been a been a bit, but you've been super busy. I mean, it's just been crazy how things have just kind of exploded for you. And we'll kind of get into that and talk about the slab lab and all that. But first I just want to do just for a second, have you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Tell them who you are and kind of what you've been up to. So my name is Sarah Parvin. I am in North Alabama and my dad and I rode to see Coppernose Bluegill. And it's called the Slab Lab. We you, called it the Slab Lab. You know, we had a, an introductory call and we talked about this a little bit, but tell me about just as, as a kiddo, how you got into fishing and just kind of, you know, how that's materialized in your life over the years. Well, when I grew up, my entire family fished, my grandparents. And so, of course, I'm in the South here in Alabama. And that's pretty much what everybody does here. They hunt and they fish. So when I was younger, my dad would take me out fishing and my granddad and him would fish every Saturday and Sunday and they would get up at 3 a.m. They would go out and they would fish and they would fish for supper. So it wasn't like just, you know, for sport. They actually brought back um, what they caught and my grandmother would spend the evening, you know, cooking up all that fish and she had the best homemade hush puppies you have ever had in your entire life. <laughs> But as I got a little bit older, I actually got away from fishing and really pursued the career in real estate that I have now. And then once I sort of realized what we had going on at the slab uh, with these massive copper nose bluegill, it just reminded me of being a kid again, right? Like being out there with my dad and just the memories that these bluegill brought back to me because for most anglers, this is the very first fish you catch is a bluegill. And just at the level we have them, they are sport fish. They rival catching smallmouth bass. They rival catching double digit <laughs> largemouth bass. Like they are absolutely incredible. So Yeah. So was there a moment you were growing up that was kind of that, that time that you got hooked or that trip that you got hooked where you decided that fishing was just the thing that you wanted to do as a kid? Yes. So I remember very clearly, I was on the boat at the slab lab. My dad and I had a little John boat and I was an unruly teenager. I got into a lot of trouble. So this particular day, instead of being able to go do things with my friends, he said, you're going to come fish with me, spend some time with me and he'd talk to you, you know, you're misbehaving. We got out on this boat and I'm not kidding you, sun up to sundown, we fished. I was not allowed to go to the bathroom because we were on the fish. That was the rule. <laughs> no bathroom breaks. If you're catching fish, you're not leaving. And I remember in that moment, it was weird because I was like 16. I remember thinking, this will be a day I won't ever forget. This will be a core memory for me. And I will think back on this time and on this day, and I will remember these moments with my dad. And it still sticks out with me. It still sticks out to me. And I just remember at that point in time, you just know, like, I will never forget this. This, this is writing on the character of who I am right now. So but he, he still is like that. If we're out there fishing together and we're on fish, 
we're not allowed to move. <laughs> we have to stay there catching the fish. I can understand that. <laughs> so Sarah, I'll have to tell you, the very first fish I caught was a, a crappie. And uh, sure. I remember <laughs> my buddy and I, I was probably 12, not, maybe 11. And we rode our bikes down to a canal and pond. And I had a cane fishing pole, right? I think it was a bamboo one, but no, no reel. Just to, And I caught that fish, put it in a... a grocery sack, rode my bike home, put it in a mason jar full of water and put it on my shelf because I'd seen that as a kid around, you know, pickled eggs or pig's feet or stuff in mason jars. I'm like, yeah, you just, my mom found that about a week later and threw my trophy fish away. I'm still kind of upset that I come home after school and my, my <laughs> fish is gone. <laughs> oh, I bet that smelled just as good as it looked. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember the smell bothering me, but apparently it must have smelled. <laughs> that's hilarious we just recently brought back the cane poles out at the slab lab we make anybody that comes out there like you have to catch a fish on the cane pole we're bringing it back it's just so much fun you cannot beat it <laughs> it's so much fun i picked up one i think it was like three years ago and I'm going to take it with me in June when the crappie are spawning at one of the particular places yeah. I like to go. And I'm going to have a blast with it because it's like a 10 foot pole, you know, and you just stick it in there, watch yeah. them hit it and pull them out. I mean, that's, that's one of the most fun things. And, you know, you were talking about kids. A lot of the times their first fish is like a bluegill, especially down South. You know, I mean, it's, they're, mm -hmm. they're everywhere. They're in every pond, they're in every lake and they're very accessible. Well, here in Wyoming, it's brook trout are kind of the big fish that you can catch anywhere in any of the streams and whatnot. So, you know, you go up into the mountains and you fish these little creeks and you catch these small brook trout. So brook trout are kind of like Wyoming's version of that. We do have bluegill, but just not near as plentiful as you guys do. Um, but yeah. I remember being a little kid and doing that. And I mean, that's, that's a lot of fun. You want to get somebody interested in fishing, go catch a bluegill, go catch a brook trout. I mean, they'll, they'll get you hooked because it's exciting. It's fun to watch them take it and it's fun to catch them. It is. It is. It's a great starter fish. I think too, like trying to teach people the basics of fishing. So I, I feel like once you get the, the bluegill to a certain level, like we have, that's where it sort of crosses over almost into that sport fishing, mm -hmm. if you will. Because they are just such a different animal at the two plus pound mark. These fish are incredibly different once they surpass that that weight and the way that they eat, the way that they fight, everything changes at that mark. So it becomes really interesting, especially when you're using a cane pole or even like a micro light. I just um, cleaned out my dad's garage the other day and came across all of these micro light rods from the 1980s. I mean, there's G. Loomis micro rods in there, a couple of custom micro light rods that he had. And I'm telling you, you can take the tip of that rod and bend it into a perfect circle. <laughs> it has no backbone. It is like a twig. So I've been experimenting with them a little bit, and I cannot wait to catch a big bluegill using those micro lights. <laughs> and I want to go back to something you said. You're talking about two pound bluegills. Most of our audience is from, you know, the Rocky Mountain West. So when you hear that, all, I, I can guarantee you people are listening to this and shaking their head like, what? Are you kidding me? A two-pound bluegill? <laughs> that's, that's impossible. But it's not impossible. And that's, that's really where I found you is I saw you holding one of those on Instagram, I think, or Facebook. And I was like, yeah. holy smokes, like my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> I was like, I've never seen a bluegill like that. And I, I was doing double takes because I'm like, maybe it's a red ear. No, it's not a red ear. It's, the markings are wrong. That's a bluegill. Mm -hmm. And so talk mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, the kind of bluegill that you're raising and just how they're, they're unique with those copper nose. Yeah, so the copper nose bluegill is a subspecies of bluegill. So it's not the same as a red ear, a.k.a. shellcracker, um, or a green sunfish. Um, these these copper nose have a couple of distinct features. Number one, they have got to be where the climates are warm. They are a native fish to Florida. They were introduced into the southeast region in the mid-1980s, um, and they've got a big copper band that goes across their forehead and a big black spot on their dorsal fin. 
Sometimes they've got blue around the gills, um, but they grow a little bit faster than your mm-hmm. average native bluegill, and they also can get a lot larger than your, your average bluegill. What is the world record for a bluegill? Right now, um, the International Game Fishing Association does not have a separate category for a copper nose. So the bluegill category is still held from the, it's also the state record here in Alabama, um, is still four pounds, 12 ounces caught back in 1950. That is insane. That is a monster. Mm-hmm. I, I know for me, mm-hmm. you know, I've been pursuing bluegills my whole life because I love to catch them. They're fun to catch. They fight yeah, really hard. They're, they're pretty. Uh, they're, they're just a really cool fish. And when I was younger, you know, we would catch them, but they were probably five or six inches. I mean, they in, here in Wyoming, yeah. it's really cold. It takes forever for them to grow. But I remember going to Nebraska and there was a lake that I fished where they were on the spawn and I caught some that were 10 inches, which was huge to me, you know? Huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then I see yours and I'm just like, what in the world? <laughs> I mean, I'm missing out on this, but you know, that's, I think it's really cool to see a fish that can grow like that. That's a pan fish, right? That you don't expect to see right. pan fish that size, but I want you to go back and tell me the story of how you ended up here. How did you end up with copper nose bluegill? Because originally your lake was largemouth bass, correct? Yes, correct. So originally we were a trophy bass lake and um, we had had a couple of fish kills, which can happen when your water gets out of balance or your pond becomes too crowded or a number of things can happen naturally where you lose fish. We had a total fish kill in June of 2018. We lost everything. Everything. The only thing that survived were these copper-nosed bluegill fry. And those fry had spawned out, had hatched, because we had stocked in copper-nosed to feed our trophy bass. So they were the forage base for growing trophy bass. And once the fish kill happened and we had some of those fry that survived, we, we started over. That's what my dad and I decided to do. We were going to start over with the pond. And at that point in time, we had every intention of continuing the trophy bass program until about a year, 18 months into it, I started realizing these copper nose, they're different. These, these fish are built different. Like I was catching seven, eight inch copper nose that had shoulders. And I was like, hold up. And it wasn't just one. It was multiple fish coming out of here that were abnormally large. <laughs> so at that point in time, dad and I decided to halt the trophy bass program and really push the envelope with growing these trophy copper nose. And it is absolutely the best decision we could have made. And we didn't know it then. We just thought we're going to do something a little bit different. Not a lot of people are doing this. Why not? Let's do it. Let's see what happens. And I'm so glad that we went with that decision because these fish are phenomenal. What kind of pushback did you get when you went that route versus largemouth? Because I mean, down South, the king is the bass. I mean, bass are king in the South. Yeah. So, you know, depending on where you're at, some places love catfish too, but like by and large, bass fishing is the big deal. So how did that go over? It did not go over very well in the very beginning when I first started sharing the fish. Just about everybody in the industry laughed at me. I mean, I'm serious. Like the, they laughed at me. It's just a pan fish. That's a kid's fish. That's just a bluegill. And it has taken me almost a year and a half to really change that narrative that surrounds these fish. So I'm finally doing that. And people are really appreciating the work and the effort that dad and I and American Sport Fish put in to growing these monster copper nose. Um, so it's like it's starting to really evolve now and people are paying attention the industry is like eat up with it. They love it. So we, we finally made it through that really rough part where people were joking on me and <laughs> calling me all kinds of names. And I was prepared for it. I was ready. I was like, whatever. Y'all are just mad because y'all don't have monster copper nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's interesting so, because they're 
I mean, just like crappie, they're just a blast to catch. Go ahead, David. Yeah. So coming into this industry, the fishing industry, what as a female, what's your perspective and what's unique and challenging from the female perspective as as kind of a say professional angler? Everything. Everything. This industry is very difficult to break into. It's highly saturated. But when I see an industry like fishing that is so saturated with influencers and the professional level and all of that, it it inspires me because I feel like, well, if it's so saturated, there's a huge market and I'm going to create space. And instead of chasing down this market, I created it with the copper nose bluegill. And so being a female, you know, people think a lot of things about um, females in the industry. You know, if you look a certain way, they think things come easier. If you do things a certain way, they think things come easier. And it's really not the truth. In reality, you know, we don't get a lot of respect in this industry. And I want to change that. I want to change the way that people view this. That's why I'm very cautious about the type of content that I put out. It's not that I fault women for doing things differently. I just have a unique opportunity here and I want to be respected and I want people to see the value in the fish story. This is something that I'm doing with my dad, who is 71 years old. He's in the last phase of his life. I want to make something that leaves a lasting impression after he's gone, the same way after I'm gone. So these are legacy type fish. And coming into an industry that's so geared around bass fishing and people, you say bluegill and they think, you know, five inch skinny little fish that you accidentally hook with your treble hook, having to change that narrative. I mean, it's been one of the toughest (laughs) things that I have ever tried to tackle, but also one of the most rewarding. Um, So it's it's a difficult industry. I'm not going to lie to you. It's very hard to come in and sort of make a name for yourself, especially when you have no sponsors. I mean, we, I have no sponsors. Dad and I, you know, do all of this on our own. And there's just no, you know, it's difficult to sort of stand out in the crowd. Yeah. One of the things I really respect about you is you always keep the focus on the fish and the fishing and telling yeah. that story. I mean, you yeah. can find lots of Instagram accounts and Facebook accounts that don't do that. I mean, they, they focus on right. lots of other things. And you know, I'm always just like, like I said, my jaw hits the floor every time I see these fish. Cause it's like, man, that is a dream fish for me personally. And just mm-hmm. to see that somebody's doing it and doing it well, it's just like, man, that is super cool. I think the other thing too, like you said, it's such a saturated market in fishing. I've been involved in the fishing industry since about 2008, 2009. And it's, it's, it's really tough, right? It takes a ton of work mm-hmm. and I, I do respect the amount of time because, I mean, it's it's evident just seeing this, the content that you do put out, how much time and effort that you are putting in. And yeah. so I, I really respect that. But talk about that a little bit. I mean, what's a day-to-day for Sarah Parvin look like? Well, I have a full-time job, believe it or not. I'm not, play, I'm not paid just to play around and fish and, <laughs> you know, do Instagram. I have a full-time job, so... I usually get up at about 4.30 in the morning and start my day. And I usually go till about 8, 8.30 at night. Um, and in between the work that I do in mortgage and real estate, I have to be out at the slab lab. Of course, I fish, duh. But there is a lot of actual like manual work that has to be done almost daily from loading fish feeders just to um, making sure that everything is going the correct way because when you operate a trophy pond at this level, you make one wrong move and you could be in trouble. Your entire pond could go belly up. So we've got American sport fish that are located in Montgomery, Alabama. They manage our water for us and help us with the shocking and doing all of that. And, you know, I, I try to get content that is um, family oriented and a lot of the big parts of sort of my vision when I decided I was going to write this story in real time was to show how beautiful these fish are. And that for me has been one of the biggest wins that I've seen here recently is people commenting on the works of art that these fish are. Every single fish is different. 
every single fish is different. Their, their scale patterns, their coloring, the shape of their helmet or their big chest that dad and I call the brisket. It's like everything about these fish has got people paying attention to the fish. And that is what I want. So it takes a little bit of effort to get pictures just right. And, uh, you know, you're in a, in a natural environment. You're dealing with a living creature. <laughs> Trust me, I have got pictures where I have fish up in the air and like <laughs> things are happening, you know, but uh, it, it's fun and I still enjoy it. So it doesn't feel like work to me, but it is. It is a lot of work. Yeah, you talk about fish in the air. I'll have to send you a picture of yeah. my daughter, Faith. She's like holding this 23-inch rainbow and the tail is about to slap her in the face and her yeah. eyes are closed and she knows it's coming because she can't hold on to it, you know. Those are the best pictures yep. in the world. <laughs> they are. They are. They're really good. How do you how do you deal with issues like – so my dad worked for the Game and Fish Department here in Wyoming. I know that birds can be a problem, especially like, yeah. you know, blue herons, those kind of things where, I mean, they, they eat a lot of fish. So how do you, how do you manage okay. that for, for your pond? Because I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta take its toll. It does. And, uh, we have a couple of blue herons around our pond all the time. Um, we also have a bald eagle that lives on, he has a nest literally like 20 feet in the tree from the slab lab. And we named him Baldy. We even built a big um, 20 foot statue of Baldy because he's very special to us. <laughs> it's not awesome. every day you have a bald eagle to share a home with. Um, but Baldy, we let Baldy eat. He can pick up some of the bigger bluegills. The heron cannot. Some of these bluegills are so big they can't be picked up. Some of the smaller ones, we're okay with that because bluegills reproduce. I mean, a female bluegill can lay thousands and thousands of eggs in one spawn. <laughs> so it's almost like they are natural population control to a degree. But we've got so much structure, lab lab, where these fish can escape predation. It's not that big of a concern for us. We don't, I mean, it's five acres, 5.2 acre lake. You know, a heron wants to sit there and pick up, pick off a couple of fish. Yeah, it's nature. Like, what are you going to do? Because you can't shoot them in the state of Alabama. You can't shoot the blue heron. <laughs> yeah, I know that they they can cause some issues, though. Like, I, yeah. um, you know, the fisheries guys would always just be like, oh, man, we got blue herons again. Because, I mean, they, they eat quite a bit of fish, but... That was just mm -hmm. something I was curious about. What are, what are some other factors you have to worry about? Because I'm sure water quality is probably the most important factor, isn't it? It is. It is. And so um, one of the interesting things about the slab lab is that the, the pond itself has never been drained. We've never started over with new water after those subsequent fish kills, which may have been, could have been a, a way for us to really preserve the water quality, but we weren't that forward thinking almost five years ago when the last fish kill happened. So we have to treat the water and we have to treat it regularly. Um, one of the things that we struggle with here in North Alabama in the heat of the summer is um, harmful algae blooms. And most recently, we just had blue-green algae, which is actually a bacteria. We had it so bad this past spring it took almost five months for us to clear that um, using copper and things like that. So managing the water is a full-time job out there. I can't even imagine. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. What is the ultimate goal of the slab lab? We want to produce a five-pound copper-nosed bluegill. We want to grow it. What do you think it's going to take to get there? A lot of prayers. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I, I think that we'll do it. I, I believe that if anyone will do it, we will do it. And I think we are a matter of time before you'll see it, before it happens. So what happens when you achieve that goal, that five pounder? What are you going to do after that? We'll start over, start over. We'll move on to some sort of um, hybrid sunfish, maybe possibly try to feed train some red ear. Um, we'll start, some, we'll do something different. Yeah. There was a lake that was here in Wyoming that had a hybrid. It was like a green sunfish bluegill hybrid. Mm -hmm. And they were one of the coolest yeah. looking fish I had ever caught. I mean, and they, 
And they were decent size. You know, they had a little bit extra length, kind of like a, a green sunfish, yeah. but then they had that, that kind of tank like body of a bluegill and they had like, it, so they were, they had the green and then they had those, you know, kind of stripe patterns on the tail. They were super, super cool looking. And that, that lake winter killed. So that was a big bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they like restocked it with bluegills and then they put tiger muskies in there to kind of keep things, you know, <laughs> keep the environment, yeah, which, which control. Yeah. Which brings me to another question. What others, what other species are in your lake besides just the copper nose? Um, we have tiger bass, which is a Florida and a Northern strain bass crawl. So it's a hybrid bass. They help keep the bluegill population in check. We also have red ear that are in there and y'all will hear it first. We have seen some hybridization occur where a red ear and a copper nose bluegill basically and we call them gill cracker i don't know if that's the scientific term but <laughs> I like it. um we, we've got some, we've got some gill crackers and those gill crackers you know that we could get them five pounds fairly easily so hmm. pretty exciting we got crappie too we got crappie by accident the crappie were not intentionally stocked in there so <laughs> one of my dad's friends thought he was doing us a big favor and dumped a bunch of crappie so we we are not thrilled about that so every crappie we we catch comes out it doesn't get released so i'm assuming down there it's white crappie is that what's in there yeah yeah okay yeah we've got white and black crappie up here and those can eat a lot of fry (laughs) there's no doubt about it they sure can and i mean (laughs) they compete with you know for forage with those bluegill and crappie can get big too Crappie can you can get three and four pound plus, especially down here in the south. So they become a predator at that point. They're not just a little sunfish, and it's the same thing with these bluegill. Our bass population is crowded, so our bass are stunted out um, because when you've got trophy pond management, you have a thing called water capacity. How much biomass can your water hold? Do you have the water to hold a monster fish? Because that's what you have to have. And so um, we've got. That's why we have to selectively harvest so often. We're pulling fish out and to keep our water capacity where it is happy and can maintain these large fish. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you do? Yeah. Do you have to cull fish? Like take, you know, like you said, you're, no. you're taking some out. Is it just like you bring kids in to fish it or you guys fish it and take some out? We have the, um, we have American sport fish that comes up with the electro shock boat and we shock all the fish up and then they are taken in these big trucks, which are huge live wells. They are transported back to the hatchery and they are sold to other pond owners to stock other lakes for forage for uh, growing trophy bass, things like that. So they are not wasted. And that brings me to a good point because, you know, we don't want to waste any of these fish. We care for them. We obviously feed them. Um, we maintain their habitat. We try to give them the best chance to not only survive, but thrive. So none of these fish are just like throw away. No, no, no. <laughs> they go back to someone else's water. Uh, occasionally, I will let people keep a fish under nine inches to eat, um, which I think is a great, you know, purpose to, to have those fish if you're going to eat them for supper that's fine um but none of them are just sort of like cold out and left on the bank or anything like that yeah no that that's really good to hear because fish conservation is so mm-hmm. important and i mean you're putting in a ton it of work is. to actually have these fish yes. thrive as you said so but bluegills are one of the best table fare of any yeah. fish i mean bluegill and crappie walleye yellow perch those are like top of most people's lists and so Mm -hmm. i can imagine that people that get to have some of those are pretty excited about that they are we did an electro shock and um i guess it was uh earlier this fall we took out a bunch of fish and some of them kind of like puny stunted looking fish if you will we just dumped in a cooler and i took it down to the local bait store here it's called buster's bait tackle and the guy that works behind the counter he always gets the hookup on worms. Um, I took a big cooler of, of bluegill, and I mean, you would have thought he just hit the lottery. He was so excited. <laughs> I'll bet. I'd have been excited, too, and I'd have had a fish fry. That sounds really good. Yeah. What are your thoughts on catch and release versus 
you know, staking fish. Because I, I fly fish and I bait fish uh, probably 50-50 now that I hang out with Patrick. Yeah. So I'm I'm as excited to have a fish to put in the freezer as I am to put one back. And it, it all kind of depends on the day and the time and the species. So what are your thoughts on, you know, selective harvest versus catch and release? Um, I think that it, one, it depends on the water that you're fishing and what the requirements are. You know, there are certain length or weight requirements for fish that you can keep or fish that you need to, to release. I think that is a great first step. And a lot of DNRs have those, those guidelines in place. Um, catch and release to me is I want to keep a certain fish's genetics in the water as long as I possibly can. I want there to be as many chances for these genetically superior fish, which are going to be fish of a trophy caliber. I want them to be in that water as long as they possibly can, keeping that line going, keeping those genetics going. Selective harvest, though, also plays a huge role in being able to have trophy fish, whether you're in a public lake or you're in a private pond. So you have to be able to take out fish as well. So it's really important just to, you know, be, be mindful of, you know, what are you out there doing? You know, the best gift you can give another fisherman is to put a good fish back. Put the big fish back, keep the small fish. That's usually the general rule of thumb. Yeah, because some fisheries, they can get overpopulated, just as you said. You know, carrying capacity is a big deal in a body of water. And if you have too many mouths mm-hmm. to feed and not enough feed, that can become a real big problem. Like we see it in the mountains a lot where you'll have a, a beaver pond, you know, just as an example, you'll yeah. catch brook trout out of there and their heads are almost as big as their bodies because they're super old, yep. but there's not enough forage in there. So it's good to keep those and have them over the fire that night and then release mm-hmm. the bigger ones that you catch in some of the other lakes that you run into. And it's just an interesting issue because it's uh you know, you, you have the zealots who believe that you got to you gotta release everything. You, you can't keep any fish. Well, that's great in theory until you get to a lake where it's actually damaging the fishery and you're harming it yes. by putting those fish back. It's like, you know, it's okay to consume fish too. That's part of the fun. And hopefully yeah. something you enjoy, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think people just, I mean, everybody is either one way or the other. Well, there is a happy medium <laughs> in the middle and that's where most people need to fall. So, yeah, I, f- I feel like I'm in the middle of the bell curve. I, there's, there's places I go that I keep fish and there's places I go that I don't keep any fish. And there's, there's a reason for it. It's like that brown trout I sent you the picture of that fish is still in there. It'll be caught again. I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm glad because yeah. that was one of the prettiest fish I've ever caught in my life. Right. Right. Well, one of my favorite movies is A River Runs Through It. And the, my the, my all-time favorite scene in that movie is when the youngest son, Paul, catches the biggest fish. And all three, the, the two brothers and the dad lay their fish on the bank and compare, right? And you know they're all yeah. going home and eating fish for dinner. And I just, I don't know. I As a big as a big elk hunter, my favorite movie still is A River Runs Through It. So. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about this in our introductory call, but the importance of sharing fish stories with each other and telling the story of what we love, what our passions are is critical to the future of angling. And you had shared some things with me and I was hoping you could share those with the audience as well. I think for me, as I've gotten a little bit older, I have really had the realization how precious time is. We live in a world where everything is at our fingertips, right? Like we've got cell phones and iPads and, technology and devices and you lose a little bit of reality because of all of that and just being plugged in and connected all the time. So I've had a stroke um, this past May. So it's been not quite a year, but um, he had a stroke and it really sort of was eye opening for me because I realized we had already started the slab movement. We were we were already on this journey together, right? And that stroke happened. And it was the type of stroke that it should have been a lights out stroke. He he shouldn't have survived that that this type of stroke. And he was in the hospital um, and in a rehab hospital for three months after he had this stroke. And I was staying at the slab lab and I was in charge of day to day operations and feeding the fish and just keeping everything running. And it just dawned on me, like, 
our story could have ended and we would have never seen it through. And the importance of just keeping those fish stories alive, it has really become something very significant to me. And I'm not going to get emotional about it, but I will tell you that, that fish stories are one of those things that not only connect people from all walks of life. Everybody's got a fish story. If you don't have one pers- personally, you know you've got one you can tell because your uncle told you or your grandma told you. Everybody's got a fish story somewhere, somehow. And it's a great connector of people. But those fish stories outlive us. I mean, I can't tell you how many fish stories I've heard. Just here the other day, I made a big post on Facebook and I asked people to share with me their fish story. And, you know, 700 comments later, y'all, I could have written eight books with the comments these people left me. And I felt like when I was reading these, you know, paragraph after paragraph of comments, like I, I knew this person that was commenting. I was there. I was in the moment with them when their their granny caught that, you know, big catfish on a cane pole. And I, I was there with them. And I just thought, this is an incredible, impactful thing. And this is what we need. This is what we need. You know, of course, because of social media, you have to have a little bit of shock and awe, which our copper nose bluegill are story. We came back from a total loss, a total, like a devastating fish kill. I'm not talking about just a couple of fins. I'm talking belly up, fins up, surface level, bank to bank across our pond. And if you're in the pond management industry at all, you know that's hundreds of thousands of dollars gone overnight. And to rebuild and to do this, it's a comeback story. It really is. And with an underdog of a fish, like it doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better than that. I wanted to give you an opportunity on this podcast because the stories are so important. I want you to share one of your favorite fishing stories with your dad. Because one of the cool things, again, I had a fishing mentor. He passed away this this past September um, from bone cancer. Mm -hmm. But I had had him on the show the year before. And so now I've got a bunch of his fish stories that will live on forever. So I wanted to give you that opportunity. Tell us one of your favorite fishing stories with your dad. I have like way too many to pick from. But this one sticks out in my mind because it was a little bit more recent. Um, when my dad would take me fishing, he'd have to do everything. I was a kid, y'all. I mean, I wouldn't bait the hook. He wasn't about to let me cast his rod and just make a mess. He did everything. So he would bait the hook, send it out, set the hook, start to reel, and then hand me the rod. And uh, a couple of weeks after he came home from a stroke, I'd been staying with him to take care of him after he came home. I got him out on the dock. And I said, we're, we're going to fish. And he said, I'm not so sure that I need to do that. And I said, oh, no, we're going to fish. And so I tied the knot, baited the hook, cast it out, set the hook, handed him the rod. And it was in that moment I, I looked at him and I said, it's like the torch is being passed here. Like this is, this is where we are. And he was okay with it. Um, a couple weeks after that, I got him back out on the dock. We were fishing again, except he was doing all of it and he kept trying to hand me the rod to reel the fish in. And it just makes me think like, like how selfless that is, especially because if you're an angler, you know, you want to fight that fish. You want to catch that fish. Like you want the whole moment, just the selflessness of that. Um, I was like, yeah, this is going to be one of those times. Like this is another core memory right here that I will have. When he's no longer here, I will remember this. I'll remember the moment, the way that the sunlight was on the water. I'll be able to, to feel and see everything. Um, and that's what fishing stories are for me. I just absolutely love them. And I encourage people to share theirs with me all the time. And I truly care. Like, I'm not just asking. Like, I want to know. Tell me. Give me every detail. Give me every detail, you know. That's a wonderful story. I'm glad you were able to share that. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, you know, just my journey growing up. My dad's 80 and we still go fishing together, but things have certainly changed where, you know, he's relying on me a lot now of like, okay, Patrick, take us to the spot that you want to fish and what should we be doing today? This and that. And I don't know, it's kind of cool to see. And I know with my four kids, 
you know, you talked about casting it out for them and doing all that. I'm seeing them evolve pretty quickly to where they're getting to the point where they're very self-sufficient with their own rods and untangling their own lines and tying knots and doing those kind of things. So it's fun to watch that progression over time. And that brings me to another thing that we talked about is you talked about working with an organization to get kids involved in the outdoors. So I wanted you to Mm -hmm. share a little bit about that Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So, um, and y'all may have this organization out there. It's called the Mayfly Project. And we have a chapter here in North Alabama. And what the Mayfly Project does is they take foster children and they teach them how to fly fish. Every foster child that is in this project gets their very own fly rod. They learn how to tie flies. They learn like from start to finish. And, you know, as foster kids often do, they go from place to place. When they come through the Mayfly Project, they'll have that fly rod and everything they've learned. And that will be something that belongs to them. And they can take that with them from home to home. And so um, the end of next month, which will be April, we have the Mayfly Project is coming out to the Slab Lab. And those kids are going to be the fly fish for these monster bluegill. And they're going to get to have like their fishing story. Like it's going to start because I can tell you, I just learned how to start. Well, I just started learning how to fly fish. But you catch one of those two-pound copper nose on a four-weight rod, you're ruined. You are ruined. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> that would be a tussle. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's just so cool to be able to, to have a place like this where those kids can come out and they can put their skills to the test and actually catch the fish and maybe start them on the journey of, you know, finding a forever hobby with fishing. So that's, that's the hope I have for it. They fall in love with it and they never want to do anything else but fish. No, I can appreciate that. You know, just yeah. the, the whole conversation as far as my dad started, my brother and I both fishing, probably there's a story of me sitting in a Chevy love truck in a car seat at one and a half year old crying while dad's catching Brooks trout in front of the stream. <laughs> right. I'm like, just out of, we all have those stories and we all have been hooked on fishing, right? So I, I'm excited to see that it getting passed on to the next generation. Yeah. Even though I'm more of the hunting half, Patrick knows that as far as fishing and being ruined, I, I took our son to Alaska. We have videoed picture of me holding the rod and holding his life jacket while he reels the salmon in because he wasn't <laughs> going to be able to hold on to the rod. And if he was able to hold on to the rod, that fish is going to pull him right in the river. So definitely, that's awesome. <laughs> That'll ruin you for fishing, won't it, Patrick? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty fun watching Hunter. I mean, he's so seriously, Sarah. Like he's hanging on for dear life as this sockeye salmon is ripping line, <laughs> and David's holding on to the rod and to him, like, "Oh crap, he's going to go flying into the Kenai River." It was really cool to watch. All the people around were watching and just smiling because, I mean, what what could you do that would be more fun as a kid than catching a sockeye salmon in the Kenai? I mean, that's that's pretty epic. That is. And did, so how did he react? Did y'all get the fish in and did he go crazy over it? Was he scared of it? Like, how did he react? Uh, he, he was pretty excited to touch and feel and be part of the fillet process. Now, we are on the river for 10 hours in a whack. So there's times he's just standing on the bank like, hey, I'm done with this for the moment. But we get to look back on that in a decade or two, maybe Mm -hmm. when his old man's too old to go and go. When he's up there going, my dad brought me here when I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. So on that same thought, what is your favorite fish to catch and eat? Um, I'm going to have to say bluegill. (laughs) (laughs) How do you prepare? I love them. And and usually we will just clean them up and fry them with a little bit of cornmeal, some lemon pepper, or maybe some like Cajun seasoning, hot grease, deep fry them. I'll tell y'all, they are to die for. The bigger fish, we don't cook. Obviously, we release those. But I have heard that the bigger the bluegill, the less sweet it is and the meat's not as tasty which is also a good reason if you catch a giant bluegill to release it. (laughs) So I will say that, but definitely bluegill. We love to cook them and eat them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Same thing with 
Go ahead, Patrick. I was just going to say, like, same thing with walleye. Like, if you're eating, like, a 16 to 19-inch walleye, it's going to taste way better than if you were to catch and keep, like, a 25 to 30-inch walleye. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Put those big ones back. But go ahead, David. When you were talking, thinking about halibut, you know, you get up to 40, 60 pounds, the, uh, the grain of the meat is pretty tight. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. You get over about 100 pounds on a halibut, and the, the grain gets so wide that it gets flaky and dry. And those 300 pounds, those are the big hens that are full of eggs. Let that let that 300 pound halibut go. Oh go God. catch a couple yeah. 40, 50 pounders. Those are the yeah. good ones to eat. Yep, exactly. Now you had mentioned that you like elk and that you had tried elk. Oh yes. So I was yes. curious what it what kind of elk cut did you get and how did you prepare that? It was actually a friend of mine. Um, he got where did he go elk hunting? I, I can't remember where he went, but he brought back everything, and it was this elk sausage. And I'm going to tell you, it is, like, the best thing we've ever had. He brought back, um, like, we had elk hamburgers, and um, they were really good. But this elk sausage, because we, we deer hunt a lot down here. We have deer sausage. Elk sausage is a totally different ball game. This stuff was so good. I mean, we were, like, eating it just like it was going out of style. So that has been some of my absolute favorite was the elk sausage that they had from their hunt. I, I want to say they were in like maybe Montana. I'm not real sure. There's a bunch of FBI guys that went on this hunt and they were kind enough to bring us back the spoils. So it was nice of them to do that for us. <laughs> yeah. David and I eat a lot of elk, especially David. He, he elk hunts like crazy. And I know yeah. our, our kids, and we make jerky or sausage or any of that, it is gone in a hurry because they yep. just devour it. Right, David? Uh, they do. And I'm I'm prompted to think of my second favorite movie, and it's uh, Jeremiah <laughs> Johnson. And, you know, there's a quote in there, uh, you know, I can't understand people down in the valley trying to eat hogs and you could be up here eating elk, right? Eating elk. And, yep, exactly. <clears throat> you know, the other quote is, many a man has come to the mountain trying to get from the mountain what they couldn't get from down below and it all comes to nothing you know that quote when you, you really think about that one is and it's, it's, it's an elk hunter movie i think i don't know I, i'll have to watch it again i've watched it a few times but yeah i i like to eat elk for a reason hog is fine i, I will trade a lots of elk burger for for lots of white fish i do like some some cornmeal fried fish so it's good anytime you come out <laughs> You, you bring a cooler full of fish, and I'll trade for a cooler full of elk. I got you. Listen, I will do that because I actually do. I, this is so off topic of fishing, but I follow a carnivore lifestyle, so I only eat like meat. That's pretty much all I eat, and some some fruit occasionally. So it, I eat a lot of meat, like deer heart. I eat the organs. I eat mm. all of it. We eat nose to tail. We're going to eat the nose to tail of that animal. If we actually have to take out that animal, it's going to do more than just throw me a couple hamburgers. We're going to make no waste of any of it. So, yeah, that's something I shared with y'all. <laughs> Over here eating gel carts. <laughs> Patrick and I have had this conversation already. I've been on the road doing trade shows for what, three and a half months. And when I'm home, I, it's, I think they call it paleo, but that's just what we have. We have yeah. protein that we've procured. So we eat elk at my house. Patrick eats elk at his house. And then the wife will throw some sort of vegetable on the side of that. And I stay, you know, pretty lean and trim and, and mean and fit. I've been on the road eating at, you you can name any one of the big name fast food joints, but I'm, I'm the heaviest I've ever been just because of living on the road eating this garbage food. So I'm looking forward to having jerky and, and broccoli and some mm -hmm. steak. <laughs> well, speaking of food, I do want to talk about one of our sponsors, which is High Mountain Seasonings. And Sarah, I'm going to send you a special seasoning to try on your bluegill um, after we get Yay! done with this podcast. But if you guys haven't tried High Mountain Seasonings yet, you got to do it. It doesn't matter if you're cooking bluegill or if you're cooking elk or if you're cooking moose. Makes no difference. They've got something for anything that you're going to cook. I do lots of smoked fish. They have great smoked fish brine. 
Um, so go to himtnjerky.com, check out High Mountain Seasonings. And I did want to talk about this sponsor too, Sarah. So PK Lures is one of the sponsors of our show. And I've been working with PK for many, many years. And they have a couple of these jigging spins that are just perfect for bluegills, especially out here in the Rocky Mountain West. One of them is called the PK Predator Spoon. If you haven't tried it, catching bluegills, it is so much fun. It is a blast. So I'll have to get you one of those too. But um, That'd be awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So it's been really fun having you on the podcast. Again, been waiting for a while. We just both had crazy schedules and I really appreciate you taking the time to make it happen because I know you've got a hundred other things to do, but we're super grateful for you taking the time. Mm -hmm. And it's fun for me when we get to interview people that are passionate about the same things, right? Like we want to see fishing get stronger, more resilient. We want to see more kids doing it. We want to pass that on. We want to tell the story. So I just want to say thank you for that. And then also if people want to know more about the slab lab, know more about you, where do they go to find out more information? Um, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Sarah, the closer Parvin. To be honest, I don't care for TikTok very much. So there's not a lot that happens on that platform, but all the other platforms I'm very active on. You can message me. I do my best to respond to every comment, every message. And it is me actually responding. So you can find me there, Sarah the Closer Parvin. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.